It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Barely a day goes by in Washington, D.C. without pundits worrying about what the Russians will do in 2020. The 2020 election, it is already under attack. You thought I was going to say underway. No, under attack. We assess that foreign actors will view the 2020 U.S. elections as an opportunity to advance their interests. Will the Internet Research Agency, Russia's troll army, strike again? Will the GRU, Russia's military agency, hack the candidates' emails and pass them on to WikiLeaks once more? Is the United States prepared to counter the attack? No one knows the answers, but everyone is freaking out. On this week's Cyber, we talk to the Grug, probably the closest thing to an InfoSec celebrity in the entire world. The Grug recently spoke about how the internet has changed disinformation and information operations, and he's here today to tell us all about it. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. What's with what's with the name Thaddeus? I saw Thaddeus the the Gruck now. What's what's that? Oh, yeah. So I I basically I figured that people were freaking out that I was the Grug too much. Okay. And so I I made it Thaddeus, so it was more like a normal name. Right. And people freak out less, even though like I think Thaddeus E Grug sounds more crazy than Grug, but you know. It sounds like way more boarding school. Do you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> like a lot yeah. more boarding school. <laughs> you went like you went from like in, internet incognito straight to like Chetton Hill Repertory School or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So you, I, like, it's the only thing that makes the make any sense, like Thaddeus E. Yeah. You know, T H E Grog. Uh, maybe. No, know? it's it's a good. But, it's a, no, I endorse it. I do. It's 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 you know, it's changing it up. But so your fanboys yeah. and and fans period just they were upset about it um no but like there there was it was weird like basically people have a very for some reason they're they're pretty negative in their opinions of me and so i i figured that to some extent it was the fact that i didn't have like a, a normal name and um like i've already seen that there's like a change in some of the comments that people have like they're they're less like they they don't focus on the name as much anymore. Right. Like that used to be a thing that like held people off, but it seems not to anymore. I mean, we, we were just discussing this, and we were all of the opinion that you're kind of one of the most. You maybe are the infosec celebrity, which is <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. Like everyone knows you. Yeah, yeah, I find that very very crazy. Like, um, it it makes no sense to me at all. I mean, <laughs> you clearly know what you're talking about. How do you? Why do you think you became so popular among everyone? Because everyone, I've even heard people be like, "I know what he's actually like," and you're like, "Okay, cool, man." I, you know, I really don't know. I think part of it is that other people have been working for a living, and I've been unemployed, so I've just been able to like stay engaged, and I don't have people censoring the output that I have, so I can just you know, write and post at will, whatever I feel like. And since, you know, I'm not a complete idiot, like I'm putting out stuff that I, I think is good and has good analysis and other people can see that. And so like volume wise, I'm able to put out a lot of stuff. And then 
uh, I'm also kind of an asshole. And, right. Um, I've noticed that. <laughs> so I, I don't really hold back when, like, if someone pisses me off or, like, they, they do something stupid or, like, you know, a company makes mistakes, I, I don't really soft pedal it that much. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I don't blame you. You don't have that, like, crowd strike or, you know, Facebook yeah. handler being like, you got to stay quiet. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, there's there's not someone who is censoring me, which is probably not a very good thing on my part but um yeah i don't have someone going like you need to corporate speak this i could just go like what fucking idiot would do you know whatever. xyz you know, like <laughs> yeah look at these morons who needed 30 web shells to get some data not like <laughs> well you know this is a serious breach which you know, shows a level of sophistication fairly unseen and yeah <laughs> So, you know, getting to another big topic in, in InfoSec right now, I mean, actually, I would say it's just the topic that keeps on giving for the last, you know, three years. We can't hear the end of it. Russian hackers, disinformation. And you you recently spoke about how the Internet blew up information warfare. So I was just wondering, how do you think the Internet, quote unquote, has changed information warfare? It's it's weird in some ways. So like I personally don't believe that like all of the troll farm stuff had as big an impact as the media likes to portray. Um, the media likes to say that the troll farms and everything had a huge impact because it sort of absolves them of their their coverage of the leaked emails. And the leaked emails was what really threw things. Like that was the that was the major impact in that campaign. That was the big thing. The troll farms sort of, you know, like they're probably just speaking, they're speaking to a small audience. They were sort of, you know, preaching to the choir to a degree. But all of that aside, what's fascinating about the troll farms is if you if you want to explore how that sort of propaganda has changed from the historical propaganda that we had available, um, I'm going to just look at specifically black propaganda, which is uh, what they were doing, where they were impersonating uh, members of the target audience to act sort of like, we're one of you and here's what we think. you know. And then they'd have their shills next to them going like, gee, I never thought of it that way. That's a insightful perspective. I also now think that way, you know, to try and get people to go along. Um, what used to happen when, when black propaganda was being done is that you would be sort of trying to imagine yourself into the position of your target audience, then you would be sort of trying to create a message. Like what you want to do is you want to empathize with them. You want to, you want to create a message that speaks to them as if you care about them. However, the message should direct them to do something that's not in their best interest. It's in your best interest. So sort of, it's a fairly difficult thing to do. And it also, it's, it's, complex you know you need to have someone who really really knows that target audience and that is a very hard thing to get these days what the internet has allowed is you don't actually need someone who really really knows the target audience anymore you can simply test the reaction in real time to how a particular message is doing and the feedback loop is now very very tight it's literally in real time so you can tell which messages are resonating, which messages are working, and you can course correct, you know, as as you go along. And so, as I said, historically, you needed the sort of genius guy who'd come up with these ideas and you'd throw them out, 
and then you'd wait for uh, what was called a comeback, which is the sort of return on whether the message has landed or whether it's, it's had any impact. And this could be, um, you know, you, you'd release a rumor in France and you'd wait for it to show up in Turkey and you'd measure how long that took. And you'd say, all right, if it got from France to Turkey, it must have resonated quite well with the, the target audience. And we can assume that this eight week journey, maybe it went through Germany as well. So, you know, that seemed to work well. And this other one that didn't show up didn't work well. So you'd have this maybe, you know, two month lead time to get any feedback. And two months in a war is a, a really long time. But these days, it's you can have, time. you know, feedback within seconds. Mm -hmm. So you could, like, that's that's what really changed everything. Is that You went from needing this genius who could sort of tell by their, their own sort of innate genius power, this thing is going to work really well, to just having someone who could go, like, here's 10 ideas, let's see what works. All right, these three did really well. These seven, no one paid attention to. Okay, drop those. Out of these three, what are some variations? And let's see if we can get better engagement. And that means that you no longer need to have a genius. You don't need to have a really, really good person to do your black propaganda. You just need someone who can do data analysis and do regular marketing. So these days, you basically just need your, your basic entry-level marketer and copy editor and someone to look at your engagement metrics and come back and say, okay, you know, this campaign is going really well. This one's not going really well. You know, what do you want to do? And then you can A-B test if you want to. And like all of this stuff, it's, it's no longer necessary to have someone who's good at this. You just need someone who's adequate at marketing. And you could just have just test things constantly. Because, I mean, if you look at it too, the sort of the history of information warfare, at least from a modern context, mm. you know, like – which is why, if you if you're looking at it, Russia's always been decent at it. I mean, the the mm -hmm. the Okhrana created mm -hmm. the uh, Protocols of Zion, which is a completely anti-Semitic, <laughs> awful piece yeah, of it's literature. Still going, it's right? still going, and it was created in what, like 1905, 1906, and it essentially yeah. created this whole conspiracy around a global Zionist movement against you know, quote unquote, would have been mm -hmm. most of European powers, and it's still in in, in yeah. circulation. So. I mean, you look at that, but then you look fast forward to 2016. I mean, do you think Russia got better at it? Or do you think it was just sort of, I mean, I, actually, to be to put it bluntly, do you think Russia did a good job in 2016 at its information warfare attacks on the U.S. and its election? Um, <laughs> so I, I think the, like, to be completely fair to the Russians, um, playing information war against the Americans is sort of playing on easy mode. The, the Americans are very, very gullible. They're, they're, their media is not particularly critical. They're much more driven by getting things out quickly and then sort of patching afterwards. Like, oops, yeah, like it, it turns out we didn't mean that entire story that we ran for two days. Um, here's a three-line correction on page A12, you know. And so because it's a, it's a soft target, the Russians who, um, I mean, I, I would rank them as middling. Right. They, they, if you look at World War II uh, British stuff, that was the pinnacle. No one has ever been that good again. Even the British have lost the ability to do what they did then. The Russians never met that peak. They still haven't, but they haven't dropped low either. They've, they've sort of had you know, a century of being a medium-level information warfare power, and they've stayed at that level. 
the U.S. sort of like has these peaks and valleys, like when wars come up and they suddenly need to do uh, perception management and propaganda, they sort of get a little bit good again. And as soon as it's over, they forget everything because, you know, that's the last time they'll ever have to do that. And then the next war comes along, they sort of slowly build up capability. And as soon as it's over, they drop it all again. So the U.S. has never been particularly good. Britain has basically lost its role as being good. No one else is sort of really playing the game very well. So if if you are like the one-eyed man in the land of the blind, that's basically Russia. Like they're not the absolute best, but they're slightly better than everyone else. So the the interesting things with Russia is that they, they're not afraid of information warfare. And they, they also view information warfare as part of the job of the intelligence services. They, they have a much more expansive view on how sort of like the security services should work with the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, a very broad idea of like these are things that are within our purview and that we have to pay attention to. Like the Gerasimov, uh, the is, the Gerasimov yeah. doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they, they have a very big idea of like, you know, the, the idea of the patriotic hackers, which – you know, actually do exist, but it's kind of because these guys really believe that Russia is being persecuted and uh, everyone who can should stand up and join them. And some of them are good cyber criminals and are recruited. Yeah, yeah. some of them are paid, some of them are, you know, shills, some of them are legitimate, some of them are, you know, being impersonated, all of these things. But they, they really have this expansive view, which allows them to include civilians as part of their national security apparatus. Whereas if you look in the US, the idea that like, you know, citizen hackers would help the NSA is like, it's literally unthinkable. The idea that, you know, um, if someone in the US hacked Iran stuff and said to like the NSA, here, I hacked some Iranian stuff, here's a bunch of information, the NSA would go like, all right, we've turned that over to the FBI, Um, you know, you're going to get raided. You know, Absolutely. hacking I mean, is it's, illegal. It, You're not allowed it, to do that. Yeah, and not only that, I think, I mean, the NSA is also, I mean, it, it did up until at least recently faced a pretty bad recruitment problem just because the perception yeah. of the government hasn't been what it was before. Yeah, I, like so I personally, I find that very weird because I, I happen to quite like um, the IC. I find them very interesting. But like the, the sheer hate that the, the citizens have for... Their security apparatus is very strange to me, and uh, I can say that because I've lived in a police state. I, you know, I, I live in other countries where you know, like, there actually are bad things. You know, like I've I've seen I've seen stuff in countries where like, you know, the security services are actually secret police. Like, if you go to the the Middle East, the secret police, their job is to find anyone who disagrees with the government and torture them. You know, and like the FBI, yeah, they're kind of dicks and assholes, but they're not literally out there, you know, grabbing people who go to demonstrations and torturing them and killing their family members. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's, a, there's sort of a line that they don't cross, you know, and despite like all the bad things that there they can be with the IC, I, I think you, the Americans really have a pretty good one, generally speaking, in terms of their relationship with their citizens. And civil liberties. Where, yeah, exactly. Like they're all, all all around, they're pretty good. Like 
compared to what they could be, they're, they're quite good and, you know, people should be happy for that. And I, I think that there's actually opportunities to do the, you know, uh, fix the system from within. You know, like you, you couldn't say in like a, a Middle East country, join the secret police and be like, I'm going to fix the the uh, Mahabharat from within by, you know, climbing the ranks and then getting them to stop going after dissidents. But you could join the FBI and be like, we need to change the way that we go after hackers, you know, and you could actually do that. That would be a viable thing that you could do. So... I think that the recruiting problem is actually hurting the community more than it's hurting, um, you know, like the NSA. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, speaking of the intelligence community, speaking yeah. of the intelligence community, do you think it is prepared for the 2020 election? Do you think it's, you know, because there's a story that came out this week that Trump isn't listening and doesn't care about the their assessment that you know the election system is 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 vulnerable do you think it is um like i i know that 2020 is going to be a mess and uh, like realistically uh, 2020 has started already right if you're going to do an info war campaign you don't sort of start the week before it's not like a, a term paper that you can stay up all night and turn it in you know, this is a, a really long process. It's more like writing a book. You have to spend a lot of time iterating and, and putting the time in and, and stuff. So the long process of building up an audience, of gaining credibility, uh, of acquiring data that you're going to use, of doing the analysis, like all of that stuff has already started. You know, if, if, you're, if you're not already preparing for your attacks in 2020 now, you are very, very far behind. And I think part of the problem with the, the lack of response to 2016 is that it's basically signaled that anyone who wants to can get away with it. You know, there's, there's no reason to hold back. So last time, you know, the Russians were sort of out in the forefront. China has always sort of been involved, but just with uh, doing investments, you know, shady donations and things like that. Now, you know, they, they may as well go all out and do whatever they want. Saudi, similarly, they've, they've been big on doing the money thing, but they've got cyber capability now. If they want to, there's a they lot can of go Saudi ahead and do... There's a lot of Saudi trolls out there, I keep noticing. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've, got, they've got huge botnets. Um, they've been doing a lot of Infowar hack and leak stuff. They found that their hack and leak operations don't work very well, but um, that's... Not in the, the, neither do their assassination programs either, apparently. <laughs> no. But, um, what's actually fascinating about that is that if you, if you look at the coverage, you realize that all of that was an information war campaign run by Turkey, and it was absolutely brilliant. Like, I, I think that that needs to be taught in schools. So, Just how brilliant the, the, the information campaign was coming out of Turkey? Yeah. So, like, I, I would say that, okay— 
yes, obviously, Saudi did something absolutely horrible, and it's great that they're getting done for it. Breaking news tonight on a very dark subject, the murder of American-based Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, specifically whether the de facto Saudi ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, ordered the killing. According to new reporting, which first broke in the Washington Post, the CIA has concluded the answer is yes. But unless Turkey had run that information campaign the way that they did, this level of visibility never would have appeared. And if, if you look at it, the way that they did it was, you know, on day one, they had all the information already. They had the, the CCTV, they had like the recordings, they knew absolutely everything. If they dumped all of that at once, it would have been one or two news cycles and mm -hmm. it would have vanished. But they kept because, it, they kept, know, they kept trickling it. Yes. Slowly. Exactly. And the way that they did it was, okay, you know, there are rumors of an audio feed, you know, uh, uh, anonymous officials suggest. Then the next day it would be like uh, anonymous officials from, you know, like the CIA confirm there is audio. And then the next day it would be like uh, we have seen a summary of the audio transcript, you know, and then the next day it would be like portions of the audio release. So there was always something slightly new. And they really played the media very well because they, they know that like the, the media, if you if you just look at the media from a semiotics point of view, they're sort of what makes something newsworthy is not like a it's not a platonic ideal of newsworthy. There's, you know, like superlative and novelty and all this stuff. So like what they were doing was they were doing uh, superlativeness like this is the best. So right now, like the best thing we have is there's probably audio. Then the next day it'd be like, actually, we've got something better. We have confirmation that there's audio. And the next day it'd be like, actually, we've got even better than that. We have a portion of the audio. And then the next day it'd be like, hang on, guys. You won't believe what we have. We've got something way better than we had before. You know, and so they, they kept hitting these buttons that they knew the media had to respond to. And that allowed them to spend sort of weeks going over this and keeping it on the front page. And because of that, it was super effective. And I think if, if anyone is going to do Infowar correctly, they should look at how the Turkish people ran that, how, how Turkey did that attack, and they should copy that exactly. Like that was genius. And you wonder if that will happen in this in this this upcoming election cycle. I mean, one thing that I was speaking with some of the motherboard crowd with recently was that, mm -hmm. you know, the Canadian election is coming up in 2019 or October 2019. Mm -hmm. So if you want to sort of test out some of your capabilities and see how they might work in a similar country to the United States, mm -hmm. that might be the perfect opportunity. Yeah. So I've been invited to be involved with a couple of uh, Canadian uh, election security things that I'm working on. And um, with the government. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're aware of this and I know that they need to do something. For our Weekly Insider, we're asking, is Canada prepared for a social media cyber attack like the one that tilted the 2016 U.S. elections? From my point of view, I think a lot of people sort of overestimate their value as targets. So I, I don't know that Canada is that vulnerable, and I don't know if you want to necessarily burn your capabilities beforehand, because you know one of the things that happened with 2016 is Russia burned a lot of infrastructure, and they made everything a much harder target. Like they went so overboard, and they were so public mm -hmm. that now everyone is aware of it. Like if if they hadn't won, if they hadn't been so over the top, then it still would have been the like, oh yeah, right, Russia. You know, come on, pull the other one. 
and they would have been able to do it again because no one would believe that that was a real like that was a real threat that there was a real thing that happened instead people were like oh, holy shit you got to watch out like what if these russians do that thing again yeah they now did? it's like bot 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 hysteria <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, but it won't be it won't be bed. bots. It won't be um, bots in that way this time around. That's one thing that I no. I keep sort of cautioning against is that in discussions with people here, because what I'm saying, I wanted to pass this by you, is mm. more. I believe there are at least some form of nation states who are starting to look at sort of the extremist sides of of the internet and trying to incite sort of mistrust with the entire social the entire society of the united states and create Mm -hmm. violent division yeah like um like accelerationism for example yeah the the whole thing is like if if you look at QAnon, it's literally some asshole posting gibberish on one message board that has formed this entire social community made up of people who don't have a community and they've just joined in with this this thing and they, they they believe sort of like you you look at their slogan where we go one we go all that's a huge thing about community that's sort of it's almost a what would jesus do mm-hmm. sort of um well, slogan of like it's the know, us against all... them the us against them kind of concept which is really strong for yeah. social bonding yeah and um you know all, all of that in a way it comes down to the fact that these days the world has it shrunk and that the the distance between any two node is very very short because we're all online so when they used to be very very long and we used to live in villages you know the short distance was to your neighbor so you tended to identify you know the us was the village that you lived in you know it was the people that you knew it was the guy across the street it was the baker and so on so you you found things in common with them and that's what held you together but these days um, you don't need to go just on geographic locality. It doesn't need to be the village. You can say, all right, you know, we are interested in chess and chess is a global community. So you can identify as a chess player and part of this chess environment. And that could be the part of your identity that provides you with community. Obviously, InfoSec, we've got like InfoSec is our community. That's how we identify and it, it gives us a sense of, of, you know, belonging and whatever. And as the, we're still struggling with the, you know, the us versus them of trying to be like the, them isn't the stupid developers that are putting bugs intentionally into their code. You know, let's stop trying to do this demonizing thing. But yeah, I think if you, if you also look at one of the things that people were very, very worried about the memetic warfare, which they talked about, but which, the Russians didn't actually do like the Russians did straight up propaganda. Like mm-hmm. what they were, what they were putting out was literally, you know, like Rosie the Riveter, we can do it. It was very much saying like you're one of us because you agree with this sort of messaging. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Whereas, trying to it was recruit the, people. It was the dank meme lords that were making all those, all those right. insane. And those guys are, are alt right, and they actually are recruiting, right? And that's the thing that you if you want to look at memetic warfare, look at 4chan, look at slash poll, look at what these people who are doing, you know, uh, recruitments against young men, you know, like, let's be honest, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, old women getting involved in the alt-right, um, you know, and they're, they're doing it by saying, like, here's something edgy and amusing and, like, 
you can you can sort of say this, but then you can go like, dude, why are you like, you know, it's just a joke. Relax. Don't take it so seriously. And that allows them to sort of get people in. And once they're in a little bit, you can get them a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually, you know, that's your recruitment funnel. And that stuff, I think that's a real mimetic warfare that you want to look at. You want to duplicate. If, if that's how you're going to run mimetic warfare, you're going to do it the way that the alt-right has done it. And they've been very, very impressive in how they've been able to go from, you know, like when, when was the last time that Nazis were a serious problem? You know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, no one was going like, we got to get the Nazis off Twitter. And now, like, literally, we have to get the Nazis off Twitter, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's you could blame that on memes. I think you could make a solid argument that that's down to memes. I don't know if it's true as like the only reason, but I think it's definitely a part of the reason. And, um, and and I think, I think the other thing too, is like you said, they're, they're literate with, mm. with our culture and also our society because they're part of it. And I think Mm -hmm. what some of the alt-right is doing right now is they're really tapping into some, some key things of young white men that are, that they're angry about and they're creating memes specifically for them. Like if you look at, I don't know if you've seen like the hashtag honk and honkler and the honkening Uh, and some of that stuff coming from the Yang gang and all that. It's, it's, Mm. it's really, it's really scary propaganda, but it's getting a lot of play and it's, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, you know, the, the the unsettling part. So I I think one of the advantages that the, the alt-right has right now over, um, I won't say the alt-left, but let's say like the, the left wing is that the alt-right is actually having fun, right? If you join the left as like, I'm going to be super liberal, what happens is you have to police your speech to make sure you don't say something offensive. You have to make sure that you're like following all of these rules to stay on the inside. Whereas if you join the right, you can say whatever you want and you can piss on people and you can, you know, be an asshole. And if you're a 17 year old guy and you're looking for what you want to do and it's going to be like, well, I want to be in the group that lets me like be an asshole and is going to encourage that rather than the group that gets upset because, you know, I, I failed to recognize someone's non-binary gender, you know? So, I mean, not to say anything about the left being bad in that sense, like it's all great. However, it's not a wonderful recruiting tool saying, join us and stop having fun versus, you know, join us and piss on anyone you like. And we're going to think that's awesome. You know, like you can come be one of the lads Right. I mean, which which fits into sort of like very typical young boy masculine bullshit where it's like you want to come here and egg houses and, and shit on people Absolutely. and be angry. Yes. That's yeah. that's how to do it. And if you if you on the other side, there's parameters, there's respect codes, there's values. Yeah. And I mean, like long term, obviously, as a society, we don't want everyone shitting on everyone. No, you know, absolutely like that's, not. That's, you know, like that's not how you build a civilization. You know, it comes from respecting people and having, you know, like, let's not treat everyone like shit all the time. So clearly that's not what you want. But on the other hand, we don't have a way where we could sort of like take all of that aggression and energy and sort of siphon it off somewhere. 
So like in Saudi, what they, they would do is they would take those guys and they'd say like, you know what you want to do? You want to go and die for Allah. Like you, you want to go and jihad somewhere in another country far away from here and get shot. Like that's mm-hmm. Which that's is something, I mean, that's something the Saudi government did for years and it still does to some extent. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's sort of backfired a bit when the guys who didn't get shot came back now with several years of war experience and mm-hmm. the idea of like, here's how you get rid of governments. And then, and then, <laughs> and then proceeded to launch an attack against your key, most protected ally that then <laughs> yeah. sent the world into yeah. a decades long <laughs> war. Yeah. And it sort of it backfires a little bit, but you know, uh, not everything's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every now and then a, a, uh, a local domestic policy turns into a 20 year forever war, but you know, uh, the good with the bad as you... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, I can hear your dog scratching, so I don't want to keep you long any longer, but you know, do you think the U.S. is prepared or do you think the U.S. is... Absolutely not. Um, and sort of, as I said, part of the reason the U.S. is not prepared is that the the major stuff that worked was the hack and leak stuff. And the preparation that needs to be done is not sort of uh, regulation requiring paper ballots, you know, which would be great. Uh, it's not um, better algorithms at Facebook to keep fake news from being spread, which again would be great. It's newsrooms going, hey, if the Russian intelligence is giving us an exclusive access to these emails, let's really think about whether we want to publish them rather than just publishing them as fast as we possibly can. You know, um, the, the, the main stuff is going to be like the media still has the biggest even though they don't necessarily have as wide an audience as the social media does, they have a very, very powerful gatekeeper and validation role. And if they're not exercising that, then they are becoming validators of anything that comes out. And they become the de facto amplification arm of you know whichever intelligence service is taking advantage of them. And a lot of, a lot of, people are sort of, they're doing some sort of introspection and coming away going with, well, I mean, at least we're not Facebook. And they plan on doing the same thing again. And I think because of that, you're going to see the same problem again. Because, you know, as I said, the media is the one that like, yes, social media had, you know, all of these things that were shared and had massive exposure. But most of the stuff that was shared was, you know, Washington Post articles or New York Times articles or like and all I think, of these I other mean, things. The, the, big you know? problem, the big problem with that too is that I think, and, and this is what's scary is I'm not sure, you know, we as media have learned, so to speak, is that, you know, during this whole Mueller reporting, there were a lot of a lot of problems. There was a lot of corrections that were issued. It was pretty clear that mm-hmm. I think that there was a select group of people that really did want to get this collusion narrative down and it didn't happen. And now you have this whole sort of rejection of what we've been reporting on. And even when you look at the idea of obstruction of justice in that report, it's so overwhelming that that's what happened. And it's clear that there's you know an unprecedented mm-hmm. amount of corruption that went on in the presidential administration. But the people of the United States are not as interested in in listening to that narrative because there's been this sort of full sale Mm -hmm. attack on trying to make sure the collusion narrative worked and it didn't. 
Yeah, and um, that's actually one of the, if you look at it, that would be an excellent example of a long play information warfare thing where you kind of trick the opposition into overreaching. And then as soon as they've overreached, you can go back and be like, look, because uh, it didn't go all the way to 11, then clearly saying it went to 10 is also bullshit. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. yes, it went to 10 and they try to say it went all the way to 11 and that wasn't the case, but it obviously went to 10. And because you can sort of discredit part of it, you can discredit all of it. And that's that's one of the reasons I don't like the term debunked, because debunked is a very broad, mm-hmm. sweeping term for things. So I would see frequently in 2016, people were saying, you know, um, oh, that article has been debunked. And it'd be like a 2000 word article where one paragraph sort of had to have a correction where they're like, you know, it, it wasn't Moldova. It was, you mm-hmm. know, Montenegro, you know, and people go like, oh, that's been debunked. And it's like, well, you know, actually there was a small correction made because part of it was wrong, but the rest of it is true. You can't say all of it is wrong just because part of it is wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually one of those those bias, which is like the fallacy bias, which is uh, if an argument contains a fallacy, to believe that the entire argument is wrong is itself a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that was, and, and, and that's, that's what's being played. Yeah. That's just exactly what's being played right now. And, and I think it's it's really shocking to see the level the level of political angst that's sort of been going back and forth on this because if you look at this even with with a completely objective lens okay there 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 doesn't actually appear to be any collusion but to then ignore the entirety of the obstruction is going Mm -hmm. to in the long term completely damage the united states especially if you if you continue to have a president who who behaves that way in in, in his role and if you say that that's okay then you know what the hell is the point of having a a doj that's separate or having a congress that provides oversight you may as well just elect a king exactly and And then you know see how that goes yeah and it's and then you think to yourself whatever russia was planning in 2016 and you can't really say Mm -hmm. whether you know it directly affected a ballot or not because it's really impossible to kind of get a stat like that Mm -hmm. that said whatever they were planning to do they tried they affected something and I think never in their wildest dreams would they have seen the level of destruction that has existential mm-hmm. destruction, I would say, to the United yeah, States. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that by 2017, Russia was having buyer's remorse. <laughs> you know, they were like, you know, we, we invested all of this to get Trump in. We were supposed to get the sanctions removed. That didn't happen. You know, we were supposed to get, you know, um, something done against Ukraine. That didn't happen. You know, like they, they weren't getting anything positive, you know, like there wasn't a positive return for them. It was just, you know, the, the status quo. But what they have now gotten, you know, several years down the line is that the U.S. is sort of tearing itself apart internally. And so is NATO. Um, yeah. And it and it's similar to Brexit. Like if you if you look at Brexit, Russia, I'm pretty sure was involved in pushing that it hasn't been as widely delved into but you know the if if you wanted to take the UK out of the running as a global power and just sort of keep it paralyzed for several years and ineffective and unable to do anything brexit has been a godsend you know they they literally cannot do 
anything. They, they, they've even managed to take the, you know, 20-year peace process in Northern Ireland that, you know, everyone was very, very happy for and throw it out the window. And, you know, you now have people getting killed by the IRA, which, you know, is these days it should be unthinkable. You know, that's something from the 80s, you know, the early 90s. You know, it, it, it shouldn't be coming back. And yet it is. Uh, similarly, in the U.S., you know, you could say, yeah, like Trump didn't lift sanctions, but the whole process of having Trump come in and how things have been sort of corrupted internally, you're getting a huge win in taking the U.S. out of the running as a global power. Like they're not able to operate as effectively. And that's putting massive strain on NATO where the U.S. was basically like um, the the shoulder that everyone lent on, you know, like they were the the main guy mm -hmm. and everyone was sort of like uh, behind them going, yeah, you get them, U.S. It's just, um, yeah, like it's, it's literally know? like it's the it's the wettest of Soviet Union dreams. Like it's it's yeah. crazy. Like it's literally <laughs> how many years now since the, the fall and <laughs> they're finally yeah. it's, things are looking up. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of this is amazing when you look at, you know, Russia's basically it's a economy wise it's a developing nation with a rusting nuclear arsenal they have and a smaller economy than much, Canada it's smaller than Canada yeah like they've got they they have no gdp their um life expectancy is plummeting uh you know aging population much, yeah aging population they they don't have you know innovative industries that are driving anything they're they're a petrochemical country you know all of these things and you're like these guys are they in the real world they should be a nobody you know <laughs> like they, they should be a yemen where you're like okay well you know ni nice to have you on board and everything um you know enjoy the hors d'oeuvres and uh mingle you know like they, they shouldn't be at the table but here they are and they've managed to become not only not necessarily power brokers, but, you know, they've, they've got the sort of power broker status and they've got this much larger than life image of like, you know, this evil mastermind that's controlling everything and pulling strings and making all this stuff happen. And it's completely undeserved, but they've sort of, uh, they've fallen and they've landed in gold, you know? <laughs> totally. Well, Thaddeus, yeah. uh, thank you very much for being on Cyber. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me, man. It's been good. Yeah. Good chat. This week's episode was recorded by Dean White, produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai, edited by Sophie Cases, and hosted by me, Ben Mack. Please rate and share with your friends, and I will see you next week. Bye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.